All right, let's let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that as we look at this part of your word that you would blind us with your glory. And Father, really we don't want to be blind. We want to see. We want to see your glory, but we want it to shine brightly into the eyes of our hearts. Please would you do that, Lord? There's so much glory here. There's so much about you. And I pray you'd help us not to miss anything that you want us to see here this morning. I pray that the good news of the gospel revealed in these ancient words would be seen by us and loved by us so that it might be shared by us for the sake of your honor here and among the nations. And I ask this, Jesus, in your name and for your sake, because you're worthy. Amen. Please go ahead and have a seat. What have I done? What was I thinking? When are the last time those words have gone through your, your mind? When are the last, when's the last time you found yourself in a what was I thinking kind of a moment? I thought something like that this past week when I took my kids sledding at the big hill by the hospital. <laughs> if you've been there, you can see that on the steepest part of the hill, someone has very nicely shaped what looks like a bobsled track almost, very smooth, all the way down the hill. And, and right when it comes up, they formed quite a sizable jump at the end. And I wanted to show my kids that they had nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> but about halfway down the hill, I remembered my age. <laughs> and that at my age, things don't heal as fast as they do at their age. And so maybe more than them, I actually did have something to be afraid of. Well, the good news is that my knee is healing up quite well, and it's going to be just fine. Um, I actually did hurt myself, uh, and it's, it's going to be okay. But it was one more example to me of a situation that I'm sure we've all found ourselves in. And this is kind of a silly story, and it was just the first story that came to my mind. But um, some of us more than others have found ourselves in those spots where we've stepped out to do something big and courageous, something brave and full of faith, and it's only afterwards that the full weight of what we did actually actually settles in. And we think, what have I just done? What, what was I thinking? In Genesis 14, Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, and he went off just doing what a good uncle would do, and went off and rescued him, and ended up ended up defeating a coalition of four powerful kings in the middle of the night. Four kings who had just gone on a murder rampage because a few cities in Canaan missed a tax payment. Okay, that's just kind of essentially what was going on. They didn't send in their tribute. That's very likely what happened. These four kings go on a murder rampage. Okay, talk, talk about, just think about how they react. And Abram just beat them up and took all their stuff. And Abram probably is thinking what most of us would think is at this point is what, like, what did I just do? Like, what did I get myself into? It's not hard to imagine Keter Larimer saying to his three buddies, who was that guy? Who does he think he can, who does he think he is to just come take our stuff? Let's go teach him a lesson. 
And it's not hard to imagine Abram feeling very afraid right now. It's not hard to imagine Abram feeling very vulnerable right now because because not only did he just do all that, but he has nothing to show for it. He gave it all away. So he doesn't have uh, as much as he would have to buy an army or pay for protection or build a city. That's one of the reasons why we should love today's passage so much because it shows that God knows this. God sees this. God sees that after Abram's war of faith, after he's back and settled, that he's feeling that post-war, post-battle vulnerability. And the Lord comes to reassure him. It's a similar pattern we saw in, in chapter 13 is after Abram let Lot take the best land, the Lord came and promised him the whole place. And he does this thing, he does this again here in verse 1 which says, after these things, okay, this is important, after what we saw in chapter 14, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, by the way, this, this language of the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision is, is, is important. This is prophet language. This is, this is a phrase, in, or a similar phrase that we read again and again later on in Scripture when the Lord comes to the prophets. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. That's, that's like a formal introductory speech for a prophet receiving a message from God. And so this is marking out Abram as a prophet, something that uh, chapter 20 confirms. And what's, Ab- what's the Lord's message to Abram? First of all, it's a message of reassurance. He says, fear not, Abram. Okay, which means Abram was afraid, and, and we can guess why. That's what we've just been, been talking about. You might remember from, from a few uh, months ago in our series in Matthew that, uh, that fear not is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. And here it shows up for the first time. This is the first time that God or one of his messengers says, fear not, don't be afraid. So why shouldn't Abram be afraid? He's just made four bad guys really, really mad at him. You tell me why he should or shouldn't be afraid. Well, what's God say to him? Fear not, Abram. First of all, there's two reasons why Abram shouldn't be afraid. First of all, I am your shield. Yes, four kings, powerful, bad, evil, murderous, rampaging kings are upset with him. But the Lord is his shield, which means those four guys are going to have to get through the Lord before they can get to Abram. That's what a shield does. It gets in between you and the sharp end of your enemy's weapon. They're going to have to get through God to get to him. And good luck with that. The second reason not to be afraid, your reward shall be very great. The Lord says to him, yes, Abram just gave away all his plunder. But God promises him a very great reward. He'll make sure that Abram is provided for and that Abram is taken care of. Now in verse 2, we read these words, but Abram said, and we just want to stop and think about those words for a moment. This is the first time that Genesis records Abram speaking to God. There's There's a lot of firsts here. Up until now, the pattern has been that God speaks and Abram just obeys. He just does stuff. But now for the first time, Abram responds to God. And so that, that means that today's passage is a conversation between Abram and God. And, and you can see that if you've if you got an outline in your bulletin there that we've set it up. Is it's God initiates, Abram responds, and, and then God responds. And it, it, it has the, the, the flavor and the structure of, of a conversation. And we just, we just want to 
not miss how, how incredible that is, that the, the creator of heaven and earth is engaging one of his creations in a one-on-one conversation. That, 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 that's remarkable. This is what God did with the prophets. He would talk to them face-to-face. And that's, that's what he's doing here with Abram. But what does Abram say to the Lord? Have you ever had that kind of moment with someone where you've said something to them and they respond with something totally out of the blue and you go, oh wow, that, that must have really been on your mind, hey? Well, that's, that's kind of what's going on here. God reassures Abram, says, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. And Abram's response makes it clear that he's, he's got something else on his mind that has very quickly bubbled up to the surface. Verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. God had just promised Abram a great reward. And Abram is basically saying, what good is that to me, God? What, what good is a great reward? When I don't have a child of my own. I continue childless. This is that word continue is the idea of like walking through my life. I'm going through my life towards the end of my life, childless. I don't have a child, and the heir of my house is going to be Eliezer of Damascus. So great. You're giving me a reward, more stuff for me to give to one of my slaves who's not even my own son. You can tell this has been been bothering Abram, hey? A great a, a big reward. What can make up what, how, what can you give me that will make up for the fact that I don't have a child yet? You just poke Abram and this issue just spills out. And no doubt, almost every married couple throughout history who can't have children find that to be some measure of grief. And especially so in the ancient world when offspring and the family name were that much more important. And especially so for Abram, whose name means exalted father and who has been specifically promised by God that he's going to have offspring like the dust of the earth. He's been promised that already. Offspring like the dust of the earth, exalted father. So what if he can win battles? So what if he gets a big reward? None of that means anything to him if he doesn't have or can't have the one thing that means most to him, which is a son. This is chewing him up from the inside out that he's continuing on through his life and one of his slaves is going to inherit his estate when he's dead. And so he tells that to the Lord. Now, what does the Lord say to Abram in response to this question? You know what the answer is initially? Nothing. Verse 2 starts by saying, but Abram said, and look at how verse 3 starts, and Abram said. So we've, t- we've touched this a couple times, but I'll spell it out again. In, in, in Hebrew narrative, when, when a, a speaker is introduced... And so and so said, and it says what they said. And then if it says, and they said, and it just keeps telling you more of what they said, the implication is that the other person is being silent in a significant way. Okay, so it's not just, it's not just saying, and Abram said, and Abram said, just because. Just no, the implication here is that God has said nothing. So Abram continues to talk. He continues to elaborate. Okay, this, this is a, a feature in Hebrew narrative that comes up many times. 
Here's Abram. He's just asked God a really pointed question. What can you give me if I, if you, if I don't have a child? And God doesn't respond. He says nothing. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called The Silence of God about the seasons in our life when it feels like God is ignoring us and our prayers go unanswered and we feel abandoned by the Lord. First verse says this, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod. And the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Imagine, even if God's silence was 30 seconds long, just imagine for Abram, for years and years and years, to be waiting and waiting and waiting, and he makes us, brings the question to God, and God says nothing. What must that have been like? We don't know how long God was silent for. We don't know how desperate Abram got for an answer. We don't know how much pain was welling up in his heart. But but we do know that after no response, he continues in verse 3, right? So, and Abram said, in other words, God says nothing. So Abram said, and notice here how it changes. It changes from a question to a very pointed complaint. As if, as if Abram has to break it down to make it easier to understand, as, as if he has to explain, behold, look, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, in other words, one of my slaves, will be my heir. Look, God, you haven't given me a child. Just think about these words. Abram knows that God is sovereign over his wife's womb. He referred to God back in verse 2 as Lord God, a word that has a sense of authority, even of God being his master. He knows God's promise to give him offspring, and so far nothing has happened, which means God has not done something here. So what Abram is saying here when he says to God, you have given me no offspring, that is 100% accurate. God has not, to this point, given him offspring. And Abram brings this complaint to the Lord with 100% honesty and probably a certain amount of emotion. I have a hard time imagining Abram saying these words in just a passive, dry kind of a way. Does does he shout these words with passion? Does he choke them out with with tears falling from his eyes? We don't know. But but we we just want to pause here, and, and, and I hope you know that God is big enough for his children to talk to him like this. God invites our honesty. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust in him at all times, O peoples, people. Pour out your heart before him. Whatever's in there, just pour it out. God is a refuge for us. You're safe with him. Trust him. And that means that whatever's in your heart, pour it out. Those all go together. And we know that this is true, not only do the Psalms tell us to do this, but the Psalms show us this happening again and again and again. Think about Psalm 44. Psalm 44, the psalmist is lamenting to God that the nation has been defeated by their enemies and disgraced and shamed, even though they haven't done anything wrong. 
And, and just listen to these words from Psalm 44, 23 to 24. The psalmist asked God to act by saying this, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O God, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Have you ever talked to God that way? Have you ever heard someone else talking to God that way? This is in the Bible. Honest lament is a part of the the life of faith. And I'd say a crucial part of the life of faith because one-third of the Psalms are honest lament. Psalms of lament. This is why when when a Christian is, is grieving or hurting, one of the first things that we should encourage them to do is go to the Psalms, find the Psalms of Lament, and pray those to God. Take the language that they give us and, and relate to God because one of the things that, you, that you're going to see about the Psalms of Lament, and this is in your study guide this week, is that, is that they, they have a storyline to them. They don't just tell us to like sit in the mud and then just sit there. There's a progression to them. And we need to learn the language of lament so that we follow that progression. So that the Psalms take us where they want us to go. And we're going to see Abram get there. But for now, Abram's in the honest stage. He's being honest with God who has given him a promise which he has not yet delivered. Now it's God's turn to respond to Abram. We don't know how long Abram had to wait for a response. There's a sense here, if we look at this whole chapter, that this all happened within the span of a night or or a couple of nights, a night and a day and an evening. Was it hours? Was it minutes? Verse 4 wants to draw us into the drama when it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Look! Behold, look, look at this. Don't miss this. We're supposed to see this, to marvel at this. God heard what Abram just said, and God responds. And what does he say? This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. No, Abram, you're wrong. You're wrong. Eliezer's not going to be your heir. Your very own son in Hebrew is is quite uh, anatomically accurate. Abram is going to have his very own son through normal means, and that son is going to be his heir. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He doesn't he doesn't stop by just reiterating the promise. Although we, even beyond reiteration, this is perhaps the most specific God has been yet with the promise. But He doesn't stop there. He follows up the response with an object lesson. We're going to see here in a moment, all creation is one big object lesson. We shouldn't be too surprised to see God using it this way. Verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. There's two important elements, two very important elements to to what, what God's doing here with Abram. One is the simple object lesson. Look at those stars, try and count them, you can't, and your children are going to be as uncountable as those stars. God had previously told Abram his children to be as uncountable as the dust, and this is a similar point. Have you ever tried to count the stars? Maybe when you were a child and thought that you could? Do you know what's interesting? There's actually only about 5,000 stars visible to the naked human eye. 
So out of the billions, hundreds of billions of stars out there, only about 5,000 our, our, our eye can, can pick out. But even with just 5,000 of them, we know like you can't count them just lying there by yourself. You lose your place and you lose track and it's just, it's just overwhelming. And that's one of the big lessons here. Abram is going to have so many children, no one's going to be able to count them. Now there's a second side to this object lesson. Okay, and just by the way, remember that the children of Abraham are the children of, of faith, right? And so it's the people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language who believe in Jesus. So, so think of how big this gets, okay? But there's a second big important part to this object lesson. And it makes it a bit more potent than just the dust of the earth language. It's the fact that as God takes Abram out and says, look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. The person who made the stars is the person who's talking to Abram. What do we hear about God in the last chapter? That he is the possessor of heaven and earth. Genesis 14, 19 to 22. He made it all and it all belongs to him. And one of the reasons that God created this creation is so that it would preach to us about his creative power. Psalm 19, 1 to 2, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Or think about Isaiah 40, 26, when in a very similar way, I hadn't actually seen the connection between Genesis 15 and Isaiah 40. As, as, as God through Isaiah says to Israel, lift up your eyes on high and see, and then there's a question, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So, see, creation, and specifically the stars, the skies, are preaching to us. As a child, I used to wonder, why did God make so many stars if no one lives on planets around them and they're not really doing anything out there? Like, what's the point? Well, the point is that the stars are preachers. They're preaching to us about the majesty and the power of God, about the might of the person who made them. And just, by the way here, do you know how privileged we are to live in a small town away from the bright city lights? This is one of the things that just... I just noticed right away when we moved to Nippon, I can stand on my deck and make out the Milky Way. It's just incredible. And we need to do that. We need to pay attention because there's a preacher above us at all times. Actually, 5,000 preachers. Actually, hundreds of billions of preachers. And we need to listen to what they're saying to us. You know the feeling. You know the feeling. When you take some time under a big night sky and you start to feel really small and the universe starts to feel really big, and then you think about the person who made it all. And you just go, wow. And you get quiet. That, that's what the Lord is inviting Abram to experience here. Just to taste how big God is. How small he is. He brings Abram out. Takes him out. To see this dazzling array of pure creative power. And lets it preach to Abram. About the power of the God who is talking to him. And we just need to notice something here that's so beautiful. Remember, remember this, okay, when you say, and so-and-so said, and then the other person says nothing, and so-and-so said, the implication is that they're silent, okay? If you look at verse 5, we can see that it, it's Abram's turn to be silent. The Lord brought him outside, told him to look tor- towards the stars and number them if he could. 
Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. In other words, it was Abram's turn to be silent. The Lord let Abram just stand there for a while, soaking in the majesty of the night sky in silence, letting the stars preach to him. And then like a parent leaning down to whisper in their child's ears, after letting him soak it all in for a little bit, the Lord says, so shall your offspring be. Now just try and put yourself in Abram's shoes at that moment as he hears this promise again. Think of all the emotions and experiences that his heart must have tasted in the past and perhaps in this moment. Fear, disappointment, years of pent-up shame and sorrow at his inability to have a child, uncertainty, exhaustion, perhaps anger. But there under the skies with the word of the Lord ringing in his ears and the stars shining in his eyes and maybe a lump in his throat, Abram responds to the Lord in the most beautiful, simple, fitting way possible. He believes what he's told. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord. We should stand up and cheer at this moment, shouldn't we? We got to know something. We got to know how rare this kind of a comment is. In in most of the, the the Old Testament narrative or narratives, we could say, what we get told about is what people say and do. It's very very rare to get told about what's going on inside of them. So, the, in other words, this is very important because it's very rare. How is Abram responding to the word of the Lord? He believes. Just think about this. What has changed for Abram? Nothing has changed for Abram. Standing there under the night sky, he holds no baby in his arms. His wife, asleep in the tent, is still barren. But the God of heaven has made him a promise. And Abram knows that if the God who made and owns the stars wants to give him a child, he can. Abram's faith is bound up in what he knows about God. At Romans 4.17 explains that Abram's faith was in the presence of the God in whom he believed. See, it wasn't so much even about the promise. It was about the God who made the promise. The God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God said, let there be light, and there was a star full, a sky full of stars. So if that's who God is then that's what he's capable of. And so if he says you're going to have a child, okay, I'm going to have a child then. Further down in Romans, Paul unpacks Abram's faith even further. And just just notice this. Notice, Notice what Abram's faith is in. This is Romans 4. Ah, I didn't write down the reference. Well, it's in Romans 4. In, In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Okay, so right out here under the stars, God makes this promise. Abram's not thinking, well, yeah, but I'm almost dead. Yeah, but Sarah is, 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 is barren. No, no. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Here it is. Where is here's the secret. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's where, that's, that, that's where it is. It wasn't about the promise. It was about the God who made the promise. And Abram was fully convinced that God, the God who made the promise could keep the promise. God says, so shall your offspring be. So he believed the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? I felt like studying this passage this week, I understood in a, in a fresh way this song that we've sung so many times. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. That's all Abram's doing. That's all Abram's got is God's word. But it's enough and he believes. And we should cheer. Even though we're not yet at the climax of the passage, it's in the last half of chapter 6 that we get to what I think is the really important part. And it's not Abram's faith, as important as that is. God has the last word, as it were, as the last part of verse 6 shows us how God responds to Abram's faith. Now, before we answer that question, how does God respond to Abram's faith, we should ask, how does God need to respond to Abram's faith? And the answer is he doesn't. God doesn't owe Abram anything. The creator of heaven and earth made a promise. And Abram's only appropriate response is to believe it. I mean, like, what's Abram going to do? Disbelieve it? What's he going to say? Actually, I know better than you. Um, Actually, you can make the stars, but not a baby. No, this, this, is too, this is too much for you. I mean, of course not. When you look at unbelief that way, when you actually break unbelief down, like, you know, unbelief can feel so natural to us. But then you actually break it down. You think, like, what are we saying to God? It's insane. Like, it's totally crazy. As if you know better than God. As if you get to tell him what he can or can't do. Like, as if. So, Abram just believing God is just what you do when God makes a promise to you. And yet what does God do? He counted it to him as righteousness. Abram has received more than a promise this night. Abram, and whether it happened precisely on this night or whether this is a comment about the whole flow of of his faith, what Abram receives is the status of righteous. Not that he himself at this point had become perfectly righteous in his behavior. I mean, we're going to see next chapter. He trips and falls again. But rather, Abram has been counted righteous, credited with righteousness before the Lord. So just like in a courtroom and the judge wraps his gavel and says, not guilty, and you get that that title, that status, Abram has received from God the status of righteous. That's the meaning of the word justified, by the way, that we're going to use later on that Paul uses in Romans. To be justified is to be counted righteous. What did Abram do to earn this righteousness? That's the wrong question, right? 
Because he didn't earn this righteousness. He didn't at all. It was given to him, counted as a gift from God by faith. God counted his righteousness to him by faith. Abram didn't even know that he was, this was going to happen. It wasn't like he was trying to get this. He just believed a promise. He just said, okay, to the promises of God. And that faith gets credited to him as righteousness. Do you see how massive this is? Because this, this tells us so, so, so much about God, that God is the one who justifies. God is the one who counts people righteous. And God justifies his people, counts them righteous, not when or because they actually are righteous, but simply when they believe. So again, listen to how Paul unpacks this in Romans 4, verses 1 to 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, counted righteous by works, in other words, what he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Notice if you work for it, then what you get is just what you deserve. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. What a title for God. This is, you, you want to know one of the names of God, one of the titles for God? Him who justifies the ungodly. That's one of, one of my favorite names. It should be one of our favorite names for God. Him who justifies the ungodly. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abram's righteous status was not a paycheck for his righteous behavior. Rather, it came as a gift and was received through faith because that's the kind of person who God is. That's who God is. He justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith just by believing. Him. So we can see that in the end, this really isn't about Abram, Abraham at all. Abram's faith wasn't about him. He believed God, and Abram gets righteousness counted to him. He now is righteous in status before the Lord because that's who God is, and that's how God works. And here's why this is so important. That's still who God is, and this is still how God works. This is the same God that we serve today. This is the same way that God is welcoming and saving people today. You need to be righteous. You might not feel it. You might not know it. But when we hear in the Bible, in Romans uh, 1, those words, there is no unrighteous, no not one, that should make us quake because our only hope is to be found righteous before God's eyes. And Romans 4.23 says, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Okay, Genesis 15.6, when it says it was counted to him as righteousness, those words were not written just for Abram's sake. It was not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. There's another title for God. Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's how it works. This, this is how God can save people and credit them as righteous because when Jesus hung and died on the cross, he was being punished for all of your sin and everyone thought he was a sinner even though he wasn't. And so when God raised him from the dead, he justified Jesus. He, when God raised him from the dead, he was making it clear for everyone forever to see that 
Jesus is perfectly righteous. Jesus was justified in his resurrection. And when you are united to Jesus by faith, all of your sin gets taken care of because it was paid for on the cross and you share in Jesus's righteous status. He gives it to you by faith. This is a true story that I'm about to tell, and I've heard another preacher tell it since, but I, it was true for me first. When, when I got married to Amy, I had been an intern at a church, and, and just like at EBC, uh, we don't, that church didn't pay their interns a lot of money, and so I was barely making ends meet. And then uh, that whole time that Amy and I were engaged, she was working at, at a job where she was actually making pretty good coin and saving it up. So she had big savings account. I had nothing. At that moment on the platform, when we said, I do, what actually changed about me? Nothing. And yet what did change about me? My net worth just went like way high. Okay. And that is such a great picture of what happens when we're united to Jesus by faith because his righteous status now is ours because we're his and we're bound in a covenant with him. And that is how we can be justified. This is how Abram was justified, was because a couple of thousand years later, the Son of God was going to die for him and rise again for him and take care of his sins. And, and Abram didn't know that, but Romans 5, 3.25 says that Jesus died to pay for the sins formerly committed, which God had passed over, like what Abram's about to do with Hagar in the next chapter. God passed it over and waited until the cross where he poured it out on his son. And as Jesus rose from the dead, he earned finally after the, as the reward of a perfect life, righteousness for his people. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Isn't this good news for the world? This world is full of unrighteous people who need to hear the good news that God justifies the ungodly. This is the good news that Charmin and her team get to bring to a group of people who in some way or another are trying to be righteous by their own standards and need to hear that God is a God who justifies the ungodly by faith. And those people need to become sons of Abraham by faith. All the nations will be blessed. And that blessing, as remember Galatians 3, is the gospel. Isn't this news of justification by faith good news for, for us here in Nippowin this morning? How many people do we live with and work with and go to school with who need to hear about the God who sent his son to justify the ungodly? And isn't this good news just for, for you this morning? Let me ask you a question. Are you righteous? Trick question, Right? Because if, if you answer that question by just giving evidence of your thoughts and your words and your actions, the answer is a resounding no. Even if you've known Jesus for a time and he's shaping you and making you like his son, none of us are all the way there yet. I also hope you know, though, this morning that if you know Christ in answer to the question, are you righteous? The answer is a resounding yes, because if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith has been counted to you as righteousness. You've been justified. 
You got to get that word in your vocabulary if it's not there because it's so precious. The Son of God died so that you could say that word and know what it means and, 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 and believe it and have it be true for you. You are righteous in God's courts. That's who you are. Your past, your present, and your future are secure in the strong hands of your Redeemer. And this is so, so, so precious to us. When you have know that you've been counted righteous by God, it changes everything. It changes your heart here now today because because we no longer feel the need to to prove ourselves to prove that we're righteous because we've already got that from God we've already received his standard his 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 verdict has been handed down already so we don't need to try to show off to other people to be quick to defend ourselves and show off our own righteousness because we've already received our righteous status from God by faith So we can admit to our sin. We can accept rebuke. We can walk in humility. We can grow in holiness without defensiveness because we don't have to justify ourselves. God did that already. We know the highest court in the universe has found us righteous. And so we've got nothing to lose and we've got nothing to prove. Justification by faith is also so precious because like Abram, the walk of faith is not a walk in the park. We suffer, we struggle, we wrestle with temptation, we wait sometimes years for promises to be kept, but the faith that justifies is a faith that rather than looking at ourselves and our circumstances, we look to God and we rest in the truth that he's enough for us. He's enough for our past, he's enough for our present, he's enough for our future. Faith doesn't just get justification and that's it. Faith embraces the God who justifies. And that's why we're ending this morning by singing the song again, He Will Hold Me Fast. This is not a song about faith. This is a song that expresses faith. This this song is faith put to words. Abraham-like faith that God is also our shield, that God is our eternal reward. Being with him is going to be great reward indeed. And, and, and it is, this song expresses faith that God is going to keep his promises in whatever pain and uncertainty and difficulty we might or will find ourselves in. The faith that justifies is a faith that says, I know he's going to hold me fast. We had chosen to sing this song today, and I think it's so beautiful that this is the soundtrack for our commissioning of Charmin. Charmin is going to need to know that he's going to hold her fast. We all need to know that, though, don't we? Now, final word here. Maybe you're here this morning, and you don't know if you have this faith, this faith that justifies It's true, you can't cook it up yourself. It's a gift from God, Philippians 1.29. It's been granted to us to believe in him. But would you come to the Lord this morning if if you don't know that you have this, and would you ask him for the gift of faith? Ask him to help you believe. Ask him to make you trust that he's enough for your past and your present and your future. Father, I'm asking that you would help your people to have confidence in the truth of these words 
And as I ask that, Lord, I praise you that it is not our confidence that is the measure of whether or not these words are true, but it is you and your unshakable character and your boundless power. And so, Lord, would you send us out of here believing in the God who justifies the ungodly, believing in he who raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead, believing in he who will hold us fast. Whatever's ahead, O oh Lord, be it near or far, be it easy or be it difficult, be it reassuring or be it disorienting, fix our eyes on you, God, please. Praise you for this morning. I want to thank you now, Lord, for the food that we're about to enjoy together. We thank you that you've provided it for us through many means and many ways. And as we go now and as we eat, would you bless the food to our bodies to give us health and strength and energy? Would you bless the fellowship that we're going to have around those tables together? And may it be edifying to our souls and encouraging. I pray that in all of it, Lord, you'd be honored. Thank you for all the work that went into this. We pray that you would prosper it and make it worth it all. And we trust that you will. We praise you, O God. And it's for Jesus' sake that we pray these things. Amen.